Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about insistence in prayer. Insistence in prayer. And we've just completed here at Cornerstone a series called Out of the Wilderness. And we were looking just at the principle that God uses wilderness times to equip us, strengthen us, but then we need to step out of that wilderness time into a new phase. And part of the reason that we've been sharing it is because we feel that for many of us in the church, God wants us to step into a new phase. He feels We feel that as a church as well, that God wants us to step into a new phase. And so it's been quite exciting to look out of the wilderness together. But I have a sense myself that if we're really going to do what God wants us to do, the the whole prayer level in the church has to increase as well. And we've got some prayer events coming up that I really want us to maximize, particularly the next half night of prayer that's coming up. I really believe that we need to get the whole church out for that half night of prayer. Okay? Now, I know it's a little bit difficult with some of you because you'll have to arrange babysitters and everything else, but it's in the notice sheet now, this next half night of prayer, to give you four weeks' notice of the half night of prayer so that, if possible, you can actually get your children to sleep over at someone else's house for the night so that you can both be at the half night of prayer. It would be great, actually, if everybody, because we never get everybody here on a Sunday, we seem to have half the congregation one week, another half the next week, but we do have a, 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 a huge resource in the church if everybody turned up to pray. So this half night of prayer is actually from 9 till, till 1 the following morning, Friday night. It would be great if we could really maximize it and everyone prioritize it and find places where the children can sleep over or you can uh, get grandma to come round or whatever and uh, get everybody here to pray. So I want to use these few weeks leading up to that and beyond that half night of prayer to really talk about how we can pray with power and purpose. In fact, I really struggled a little bit to know what to call this six-week series. I, I thought, do I call it prophetic prayer? Because in some ways, yes, that's on my heart, how to pray prophetically. Then I thought, no, that, that could easily give people the wrong impression. Then I thought, well, maybe we should go for powerful prayer, because people always sort of listen when you say power. Um, And then I thought, well, even that doesn't quite sum it up. Then I thought, revival prayer, because I mean, we do really want to pray to see an outpouring of God's Spirit in these days. And I thought, well, revival prayer, now that'll that'll sell the tape series. That would, you know, definitely. Yeah, I could take that around when I go preaching and say, here's a series on revival prayer, and everyone will go heading straight for the book table to buy the tapes there. But I'm not really into any of that. That's not the way I operate. And so, I mean, after looking at all these options, I thought, well, we just talk about purposeful prayer. And then as we go through that, we can really see that God wants us to be praying with a purpose. And as I was looking at it, I think I went through so many scriptures on prayer and uh, just tried to pick out half a dozen that would really make this point about prayer needing to be purposeful. A place of, if you like, insistence in prayer as well. And as I was going through, I felt that it was appropriate to um, look at uh, the way that Moses prayed about securing the presence of God. I thought it would be good as well to look at uh, the way that David prayed about God's prospering our ways and our purposes. 
I thought it'd be good too to look at Solomon's prayer when he was praying before the temple, which was basically a prayer about purity. Then Elijah, of course, praying that the rains would come, which is a picture of revival and God's provision. Elisha praying that there would be spiritual perception. Do you remember when he prayed for his servant, O Lord, open his eyes? That seemed to be important too. That seems to link up with some other scriptures in the New Testament, praying for perception. And then I thought as well that we needed to to pray about personal empowering. And uh, obviously when Paul prays for the Ephesians, and that's in the uh, Ephesian letter, there are two prayers there, that would be a good point to look. So that's the sort of landscape that we'll be following. And uh, some of your favourites may have been left out. Well, don't worry, you can preach the rest of this series to yourself at home. So, I'm not exhausting uh, the whole uh, Bible repertoire of people who prayed purposefully. I'm just picking out a handful. And then you can go home and say, but Abraham, look at how he prayed, you know? Or, or look at how, how Jesus prayed. Or, or look at how... Well, you, I mean, we could go on and on. I realised this could, series could last all year. Uh, but I felt that it was just important to come with these messages and say, come on church, we need to be praying purposefully. We need to see a new sense of purpose in our praying. We need to pray differently. Some of you saw a while back, I circulated a prophetic word that was given in Cornerstone in 1994. Um, very crucial time for us. And, uh, and as this word was given, it was, it was quite extraordinary, really. So we had a number of people who came in and gave major prophetic words for Cornerstone. And um, it was about the time as well, we had a real shaking in the church. That sometimes happens when people give a prophetic word. So it's as if all of these words are just sitting there waiting for fulfillment. And one of the things that was there that was shared very strongly at that time was that God wanted to raise up prayer in this church and through this church. And not just petition-orientated prayer. You know where, oh Lord, please do this, and if it's your will, please do that. And But actual prayer that was stronger than that, that somehow it caught the sense of God's will and purpose. It was almost moving into uh, declaring God's will. I think in that prophecy it talked about it being prophetic prayer, where you actually pray declaring the will of God. Uh, some of the things that I get involved in around the world have their own nomenclature. One, one uh, network that I get quite closely involved in has its own nomenclature for everything. And it talks about governmental prayer. And uh, they all use this expression. I speak at these conferences, they're all about governmental prayer. And I, I actually thought, I wonder how many people actually have got a definition of governmental prayer. You know, because you can actually just be using this word, governmental prayer. And I, I just tried to unpack it with them at one conference out in Nigeria recently. And what really seems to be at the heart of it is where you are praying the known will of God into a situation where you're really praying the known will of God into a situation, where, in a sense, you're taking governmental responsibility and saying, as the people of God, we know what God's will in this situation is, and we're praying it into place. So, it's that kind of sense. Now, this is actually quite a tricky area, because sometimes when people start talking about insistence in prayer, they actually move out of prayer and into something completely different. Prayer for me always involves the Almighty. <laughs> it involves talking to the Lord. It involves having a relationship with the Lord. It isn't prayer if all you're doing is declaring to this object and that object. I mean, if I was to stand here and say that pillar's got to be moved, I mean, apart from it being incredibly stupid because the building will fall in on top of us, um, it wouldn't be prayer. It would just be me talking to a pillar. Hmm? But if I'm talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, 
I'm asking you about that pillar. <laughs> there are people who sit behind that pillar every Sunday you can't see. Lord, it would be good if that pillar was there. wasn't there. Now the Lord would probably say to me, if I remove that pillar, no one would be able to see. Because <laughs> the building had come down. But at least it would be prayer if I was talking to the Lord about it. And what concerns me sometimes is that once we start talking about you know, insistence in prayer and prophetic prayer, we've actually come out of prayer and we've stopped talking to the Lord completely. It's just us doing our bit and trusting that the Lord somehow will rubber stamp it from on high. And I want us to, to, to explore insistence in prayer without getting into that kind of uh, detachment from the Almighty. So it's good to come back to some of these people. Now, I asked you just a few moments ago to turn to Exodus 33. And we're going to start with Moses today and uh, look at how Moses prayed. I'm not going to cover the whole of Moses' prayer life. That would take too long. And a lot of it is spelt out for us in the Old Testament. I'm just going to take this one section in Exodus 33. And it says in verse 11 of Exodus 33, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up the people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Now that to me is such a powerful point in this prayer. If your presence does not go up with us, then do not bring us up from here. And to me, that is a kind of insistence in prayer where you're becoming really purposeful with the Almighty. It would almost be audacious, wouldn't it? You see, earlier on in the chapter, God has said to the children of Israel, this is in verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God's saying, go on, get in there, you can take the promised land, you can have the land flowing with milk and honey, but you won't have my presence. You won't have my presence. You can go up, but I'm not coming. Because if I come, your life is going to be a misery. You are such obstinate, stiff-necked people that if I was to come in amongst you, you'd feel the pain of my presence rather than the joy of my presence. So he's saying, better that I don't come. You just go up there and you just enjoy the land. But I'm not coming. Now, it is to the people's credit that they, at that point, all of them started mourning. I wonder today if in some places you actually gave people the option and said, you can have blessing without the Lord's presence, or you can have blessing with the Lord's presence that's going to be painful. Which would you choose? 
I get a little bit nervous. I think today there might even be churches that say, well, let's just go for the blessing without the pain, shall we? Um, you know, I mean, it would be a bit inconvenient if God kept turning up and making things difficult for us. So why can't we just go up? After all, that will be moving into God's declared purpose for us. God declared that we were going to have that land and if we go in, we can tell everyone, look, we've inherited the promises of God. Look at all the blessing on our lives. Look at it. But to their credit, they said, right, if God's not going, that's bad news. That's bad news. What's the point of being in the promised land without the God of the promise? And so they're heartbroken. And Moses comes before the Lord. And as we unpack this, we can see these things. We can see that Moses has real intimacy with the Lord. But we can also see that he has this insistence in his relationship with the Lord, which is something that we want to capture in our prayer life. We want to capture that in our corporate prayer life as a church. I want to see people capture it in their own personal prayer life. So their prayer becomes purposeful in God. And we really start praying with that persistence that sees things change. You know, so often our prayer life is, oh Lord, if it's your will, if it's your will, if it's your will. Sometimes we know what the Lord's will is. And the Lord is actually expecting us to pray purposefully. And this whole series is trying to help us to pray purposefully so that we see the Lord's will done. I mean, Jesus said in that pattern prayer that we have that we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is not a, a, a sort of pretty little prayer. That's the kind of prayer that puts your foot down and says, Lord, it's got to be done. Some of us spend our whole prayer life, you know, for those of you who know things like places of verbs and nouns and things, most of us spend our prayer life in the interrogative, you know, where we're saying, oh, well, Lord, if you will, will you do this? We're always asking questions. Where there is a place in Scripture where you need to move into the imperative. And you're starting saying, Lord, do this, do that, do the other. But you can only do that if you've got these things that Moses had. Because alongside the insistence, he had an intimacy with God and he also had an insight into the wider situation. And I want us just to unpack those three simple concepts this morning as we look at Moses. Intimacy, insistence and insight. Okay, they're the three shells I'm going to arrange things on so you can find it nice and easy. Intimacy. Intimacy. I've already hinted at the fact that it is possible to have a prayer life, so-called, that leaves God out. We speak to this, we speak to that. Some people say they're having a prayer life and all they're doing is speaking at the devil all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, there are needs times when you need to speak at the devil and say, that's it, you know, this far, no further, that's it. Jesus spoke to the devil. But if your prayer life is speaking to the devil, you are missing out, folks. You are missing out. You can't commune with the devil. I mean, you might get great joy out of kicking him and telling him where to go, but that's not prayer life. That's nearly not what the whole joy of your prayer life is meant to be about. The joy of your prayer life is meant to be about relationship with Jesus. You know, and even if you do give the devil a good picking, do at least go back and fellowship with Jesus about it afterwards and thank him for giving you the grace and the strength to do it. Because otherwise, you'd be done for. And some people forget that the only reason that we've got authority over the devil is that we're born again and we're in relationship with the Almighty God. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that kind of authority at all. And we just need to be aware of this. 
I mean, we're, we're so excited about all the authority that we have in Christ. We say, you know, we rebuke the devil over this and we rebuke the devil over that. I mean, in the letter that Jude wrote, he actually says that even the angels say, the Lord rebuke you to the devil. I mean, I don't have any problem rebuking the devil. I'm not scared of him at all. But I know that my authority is not in me. It's in the Lord. And so having that fellowship with him is so important and that intimacy with the Lord. I tell you, some people have spent an awful lot of time stamping their foot at the devil because they've forgotten that there's a twofold statement. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you see those two things belong together? That you don't just resist the devil and he will flee from you, although that is part of the promise. But the promise is conditional on draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now please take that seriously, that you're meant to resist the devil and he flees from you. We've got a a sort of myth around the church today, around the world, and it's not just a privilege for United Kingdom, you come across this anywhere. There's a superstition that's dominating the church which says, resist the devil and he flees, he flies at you. Hmm? I mean, that is just such common. Resist the devil and he flies at you. Hmm? I remember years ago, I mean, I was young preacher in my twenties and I was preaching at a church in Cornwall and I don't know what I'd done. I must have said a few things that uh, some people felt would upset the devil. And some man came up to me and he said, "Um, you're driving away from this meeting, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I think I'd better pray for you because after what you've said, the devil will really have it in for you on the way home. (laughs) And I, I, I must admit, I was maybe I was naive, but I turned around and said to him, after what I've said, I don't think the devil will be anywhere around. Because the whole point about resisting him is that he flees, that he goes away. <laughs> you know, when Jesus had withstood the devil and the temptations in the wilderness, it actually says, and the devil, what? Departed from him for a season. We seem to have lost that. <laughs> now, I know the enemy wants to give us a hard time. But please, 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 don't let him intimidate you. Don't let him say to you, if you give me a hard time, I'll give you an even harder time. Hmm? Because that doesn't match with God's word. But please also, don't resist the devil in your own strength. Make sure that the first part of the injunction, draw near to God, is where you begin. Make sure you're drawing near to God, letting God near, draw near to you. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I'm going to really push this intimacy thing this morning. Because it is not enough to be known as a friend of God. Moses was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. Now, that is a huge privilege. I mean, what a privilege that is. It actually says that God spoke with Moses face to face. He didn't speak to Moses in the way that he had to deal with most people, which was through dreams and visions. He spoke to Moses face to face. But as far as Moses was concerned, that wasn't enough. I said, my goodness, this guy Moses, he's arrogant, you know. God is saying to him, you're my friend, I speak to you face to face. And Moses is saying, Lord, that is not enough. It's not enough. 
It's not enough that you know me. It's not enough that you know me as your friend. It's not enough that you turn up and speak to me face to face. What I really want is I want to know you as well as you know me. (laughs) I want to know you so that I can say, God's my friend. Not just, I'm God's friend, but I want to be able to say, God's my friend. I want to be able to say, I speak to him face to face. I know that every time God turns up, he sees my face. But I have a problem. He sees my face, but I don't see his face. He turns up and says, Moses, you're my friend. And I say, oh, thank you, almighty, great and masterful God. But I can't turn around and say, thank you, friend. (laughs) Because I don't know God that intimately. I'm sorry you can, if this is challenging you a little bit, but can you see that it is not enough to be intimately known by God? We're all intimately known by God. That's different from knowing God intimately. Hmm? You can feel tremendously secure and say, oh, I'm just so glad that God knows me so well. I feel so comfortable in that. It's so reassuring. I feel basking in his love. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It is. It's great. But all that says to me is that God knows you. How well do you know him? I mean, to be honest, if you knew him better, you might not feel so comfortable. It's just a possibility, isn't it? Uh (laughs) All you just know is one side of his character, the bit that cuddles you up and says, there you go, that's nice and warm, you know? But if you've got to know him better, you might find there are challenges. I mean, part of the reason why we do not know God very well is that he has respect for our limitations. Now there's a thought, isn't it? God reveals us, himself to us, according to the measure that we can handle. I mean, this is his heart, he's saying to these people, look, you go into the land, I won't come with you, because honestly, you'll find living with me just too much for you. You see, there are things like the fact that, you know, I don't like sin. You seem to like it quite a lot. We're going to have problems getting on. Hmm? Yeah? And this is the kind of thing that God's saying to them. And it's great to know that Jesus loves you. And you love Jesus for loving you. Because that's the way it works. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he first loves us. He has to take the initiative. We could never love God if he didn't first love us. But the love that God has for us should take us beyond the realm of just saying, thank you, Lord, that's very nice. I appreciate your love for me. It's wonderful to be loved by God. I feel secure in your love. I am so excited because every time I sin, I get forgiven. Oh, that's wonderful. And I just feel that when I'm forgiven, it's as if I never sinned. That is true. That is the love of God. For there is a love of God that can keep you from sinning. For that requires a more intimate relationship with the Lord. And it's getting into those levels of intimacy. And so Moses is right when he turns to God and says this, You've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. And you've also found grace in my sight. 
This is verse 13 of chapter 33. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. So he's moving into a realm of intimacy. He wants greater intimacy with God. It's a wonderful comment on this passage of Scripture in a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. It says that if we see the face of God, we will die. And so, I mean, in this hymn, Wesley has Moses basically saying to God, if I cannot see your face and live, then let me see your face and die. Now, there's a challenge, isn't it? (laughs) How much do we want to see the face of God? If seeing the face of God is going to put to death all that which is earthly in us and all that which is sinful in us, if seeing the face of God is going to transform us so that we begin to shine like the Lord, then do we want to see God's face? Because it's going to mean death to some of the things in us. It's going to mean death to some of our selfish ambition. It's going to mean death to some of our pride. It's going to mean death to a whole lot of things that we count dear. You cannot see God's face and stay the same. But intimacy is more than God seeing your face. I know that's a bit challenging. If you can't take it yet, don't worry. If you're still at the stage where you're saying to me, I just am so excited that God knows who I am. Great. Revel in that. Enjoy that. But as you grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, you need to press on in so that you've got a greater intimacy with the Lord. I'm saying that because other types of insistent prayer, types of insistent prayer that do not come out of an intimate relationship with God, Ultimately, they're they're powered by the flesh. They're not powered by the Spirit. And we need to see the power of God's Spirit in these days. In fact, to be honest, I think we see an awful lot of power around that is not the power of God's Spirit. And there seems to be a, a craze for power at any price. And I want to say to you, I, I'm, I'm tired of seeing power without purity. I really am. And we've, we've seen some amazing miracles and wonderful signs and, and tremendous power evangelism ministries. But sometimes it is so embarrassing when you discover that the very person that God's been using to move in that kind of power has a want of purity in their personal life. Now, I'm not throwing any stones at all, but I'm just aware that we should be seeking purity as well as power. That if all we want is power somewhere, our focus is not where it should be. God is looking for purity more than power. Because without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. There are people that have got a lot of power who are not going to see the Lord. Because it actually says, doesn't it, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, in that day there will be people coming to me saying, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do that in your name? And what's the Lord going to say to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Listen, it doesn't even get as far as you never knew me. (laughs) The intimacy doesn't even get as far as rung one. It doesn't even get as far as I know you. (laughs) He says, I don't even know you, let alone you know me. 
We haven't even begun on intimacy. But yeah, you've cast out demons, you've healed the sick, you've done this, you've done that, you've had all of these power displays. But to be honest, there's no relationship. And without holiness, no one is going to see God. The pure in heart shall see His face. There needs to be a work of God's Spirit. We need to move into realms of intimacy with the Lord. Let's get excited that He loves us. Let's get excited that He knows us. Let's get excited that He sees our face and He gives us grace. But let's get excited too about the possibility of, Lord, I want to know you better. Because to be honest, you're not going to pray prayers like, Lord, I want your presence. You know, that's a great prayer to pray publicly. But if you can't pray that privately and mean it, there's no point praying it publicly, is it? Oh, Lord, we want your presence here in this prayer meeting. Lord, we want your presence. And if the Lord is saying, well, you say that in the prayer meeting, but you know, do you say that when you're in the grocers? Do you say that when you're going around Sainsbury's? Do you say that in all of these other situations? Or do you just want my presence when it's convenient to you? Because if you want my presence, you've got to want my presence. It's like all of these people who turn up at prophetic meetings hoping for a personal word from the Lord. I can be a bit cheeky at some of these meetings because people come to meetings sometimes expecting a personal word from the Lord and expect me to prophesy over them and I say, how well do you know the Bible? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, well I know the Bible but I'm looking for the rhema word of God for my life, not the logos, this is the logos. Hmm? (laughs) I want the rhema word of God for my life, you know. Tell me what God wants for me. I said, this book tells you what God wants for you. So, I I know it's a bit cheeky. I mean, we do get blessed by personal words of prophecy. But I find something remarkably inconsistent that people want to hear the word of God for their life, but don't want to hear the word of God for their life. Doesn't that seem a bit inconsistent? You know, if you if you know this word and you're living in this word and you're praying every day, Lord, make this word live to me. Hmm? You know, and you've thumbed through it so often that even the gaffer tape's worn out, like this one has. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a new one on order. This is a this is a loose leaf Bible now, but uh, <laughs> but you need to have a heart that says, I want to know your word, and if you know this word then God will give you more word for your life. Not different word, but just this word applied. Because that's all you'll get. Because if the word that you get from someone doesn't match up with the word of Scripture, you can forget what they've said to you. Because God's not not speaking one way one minute and something else the next. So let's be real about intimacy. And this whole sense that comes over in this Amazing prayer. He says, Lord, show me your ways. Show me your ways. This is, to me, quite a nice point. It comes beyond this, Lord, I want to see what you can do, to the point of, I want to know how you do it. Have you ever been in that situation where, to be honest, yeah, you've been dazzled, you've been impressed, you've seen someone do this, and you've seen someone do that, and then you say, but, but I want to know how you do it. Hmm? I want to know how you do that. I mean, that's when a teacher really knows he's engaging with the pupil. When you've got beyond the looking at the result to say, what is the end that gets to that result? How do I do that? And here is, is Moses saying to God, I want to know your ways. 
There's a great verse in Psalm 103, verse 7, which uh, I've heard preached on a few times, but it, it fits so well with what I'm saying here. It says, God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. That's a very nice little division, isn't it? God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. Most people are content with knowing his acts and never get to know his ways. They're just interested in the results. They don't want to know the the means to that end. They just want a God that produces for them. They don't want to know how God produces and why and what's on his heart. And Moses is saying to God, Lord, I want to see your ways. I've seen your acts, mighty acts, but I want to know your ways and I want to see your glory. I want to, I want to get more intimate with you, Lord. I want to know you in a different way. I, I, I can only urge you <laughs> to seek that kind of intimacy with the Lord. Now on this whole area of insistence, as I said, we need to be careful because insistence without intimacy is just audacity. It's just people speaking out and yet having no substance to what they say. Now, there's a favourite scripture for some that is in Isaiah. You probably know it. Isaiah 45, verse 11. Now, depending on what version you have in front of you, you may or may not have a question mark. In Isaiah 45, verse 11. Because the punctuating of some of these Hebrew passages is a little bit difficult. But in Isaiah 45, verse 11, we read this. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Alright? Now some versions put a question mark in there and turn it around to make it say, basically, is it right that you command me? Now, depending on uh, what your background is, you may have heard sermons that tell you that we have a responsibility to command God. Hmm? God is waiting for us to command Him. That He is actually saying to us, listen, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. God is sitting there in heaven, waiting for us to command him. Now, you need to be careful, alright? Because although there is a place where God wants us to command his will to be done, we need to make a distinction between commanding his will to be done and commanding him to do his will. Okay, I just want to make that as a a little distinction. (laughs) Because if you read this verse in context, it's amazing, isn't it? How people can preach on verse 11 without in their preparation having read verses 9 and 10. uh, Because in 9 and 10 and in verse 12 it says this, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? 
So the whole context of this is, be careful how you speak to your Creator. Be careful how you speak to the one who's made you. Be careful how you speak to the one who's begotten you. Be careful how you speak. And then it goes on and says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my hands, and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. Now you can see why some people put a question mark there. Concerning the works of my hands, you command me? Huh? Well, I'm not going to push whether the question mark is there or not at the moment. I'm just going to try and make sure you read it in context. Because it goes on, it says, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts... I have commanded. So, can you just get a little bit of an idea who's the general around here? Hmm? You know, at the very best, you're a private in this army, talking to the general and saying to the general, excuse me, sir, uh, I've just noticed this situation here. I just wondered if you'd be kind enough to give it your attention. Hmm? Now, you could then go out and say, oh, I've just commanded the general to sort the situation out. Hmm? But you just need to remember he is the general. Hmm? and he can command you at any time he wants and to be honest you're not going to get very far commanding anything unless the Lord himself commands it and so that's the context of the passage but I do still believe that there is a place of insistence insisting on God's will being done perhaps rather than insisting that God does his will standing with the Almighty rather than standing in the face of the Almighty and sort of wagging your finger at him but standing in his power and in his authority. And I see this coming across when Moses is very insistent in that prayer. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. He's basically using a very strong bargaining tool with the Lord. He's saying, look, you can forget all this talk of us going into the promised land without you. Because, let's put it like this, if you don't come, we don't go. If you don't come, we don't go. Now, we need churches to get to that kind of level of insistence. We need people to get to that kind of level of insistence. They say, look, this is your presence I'm really after here. We're talking about securing God's presence. We're talking about walking in the blessing of God. We know that God's here. We know that God has said he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we're talking about God being here in power. We're talking about the manifest presence of God being in his church. So that when people come in the door and say, wow, God's in this place. Now, I know he's here. He's here because he's here in me, he's here in you, and when we turn up, he's here. Where two or three are gathered together, in his name, he is in the midst. There's no question about him being here. But to be here in power, <laughs> you know, so that you think, my goodness, I don't know how to stand up and minister. Hmm? Because the power of God is so great. Now, I know that some people's high point of church life is when no one can minister. Hmm? You say, oh, I'm looking forward to that day, you know, when God's there in so much power that none of us can stand up and do anything. Hmm? You know, they've got hold of the dedication of Solomon's temple and they know the glory of God turned up and the priests were unable to minister. Okay? You are not an Old Testament priest. You are not an Old Testament priest. When the glory of God came down on... Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. The glory of God was all around him. It hit him so hard, he, I guess he was on a horse, he fell off and was on the ground, sprawled out before the Lord. And he's going saying, Lord! I mean, he never called him Lord before in his life, but he, he couldn't call him anything else. He knew this was the Lord. So he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And what did the Lord say to him? He said, well, just lie down there. My power is so great you can't do anything. The Lord said to him, stand up on your feet. 
Wow! You're stand up on your feet in the midst of God's glory? Yes, because I am commissioning you to be a minister in the new covenant. In the old covenant, you could lay down there on the ground and say, oh, the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. In this covenant, you've got to stand up in the glory of God and you've got to minister in the glory of God. We're not talking about an end of all ministry where all of God's people are sprawled out on the floor and no one can do anything because God's turned up. We're talking about a day when God turns up and God's people do exploits because they're able to stand up in the power of his might. That's what we're believing for in these days. The presence of God. We want your presence with us in power, Lord. There's so many stories that one could tell where people knew the presence of God powerfully. One story told of Smith Wigglesworth. He was sitting in a train on one occasion just reading a book. And this person sitting opposite him didn't know who Smith Wigglesworth was or anything. As far as I know, didn't even know he was a believer. He just suddenly said to me, What you are convicts me of sin. No, that wasn't Smith Wigglesworth. He wasn't sitting there saying, that man over there, he needs to get his act together. That man sitting opposite me, he's immoral. He wasn't doing that. There was nothing going on under his breath. It was just the presence of God there in that railway compartment. And that's, that's the way people have got to get convicted of sin. Not by us pointing out their faults. Our responsibility is to point people to Jesus. See, God doesn't convict people of their sin until he can also point them to the Saviour who will cleanse them from that sin. So we need the presence of God. Hmm? When he who is within us, you know that whole passage that he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, it actually is preceded by the fact that he will be in us. He will be in the church and he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment from that position of indwelling believers. Wow! Indwelt believers that know the presence of God like that? People like that can start saying, Lord, your presence really matters to us. That is an insistence in prayer that we want to see. I want to be in prayer meetings in this place where people are saying, Lord, your presence. We want the power of your presence. We want to know the power of your presence. But I tell you, I would want to walk out of that prayer meeting if I felt that people were just saying it to impress. I would. You know, if I felt it was just a couple of bright sparks who were trying to sort of gain spiritual merit marks or something, I wouldn't want to be in that prayer meeting. I wouldn't want to be in a prayer meeting where people are just saying that, just to impress. I I want it to be genuine. You know, if you're not spending as much time outside the prayer meeting asking for God's presence as you are in time inside the prayer meeting, then there's there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Some places, you know, when they get together to pray, it generates more heat than light. (laughs) We need to to be wise and, and shine with the light of the Lord because we're really appreciating where his heart is. Let me come to this final area. So I'm I'm going to visit this topic of insistence again over the weeks and I just want to finish this morning by setting the scene with this whole area of insight. Insistence belongs between intimacy and insight. We can insist on things with God providing 
that we have intimacy with God and we also have insight into God's wider purposes. So many things that people ask for, they ask for entirely selfishly. I remember getting into trouble with someone once because having grown up with the well, I think when I first got saved, I read the Revised Standard Version and then I went to the King James Version, then I went to the New International Version, then I went to the New King James Version. So I'm a bit like Andrew here, who can quote you scriptures, but you won't actually find what he says written down in any one version. He's got a bit of everybody's. I know that, because when he was doing the memory verses in the Biblical Studies course, we used to write at the top of his memory verse section, the Andrew Carter version, all right? (laughs) He'd always caught the spirit of the text accurately, but it was always a combination of three or four versions. I have the same challenge, because I know each verse from about four different versions. I see that Tony Adonrelli has now solved the problem by turning up at Kingdom Fest with this massive Bible that only Tony could carry. He preached, preached from it last Wednesday night. He pulled this lectern up to a height. I'd never seen it. It was up here somewhere. And he put this Bible down on top of it, which was called the Parallel Version, okay? And I mean, it was almost as good as Parallel Bars for getting exercise. But the Parallel Version has got virtually every version of the Bible set out in parallel, you know? So there was Tony saying, let me share this with you from the New International Version. No, I won't. I'll share it from the King James. It was very, very impressive. I can only say that this morning because Tony's on duty at the prison. He's not actually here. (laughs) Let's hope he doesn't watch the broadcast. (laughs) But I got into trouble with someone once because I know that scripture which says that you have not, because you ask not a right, to spend it on your own lusts, I actually know it from a version which says, you have not, because you have not a right, because you ask not a right, to spend it on your own desires. And I remember saying that to someone, I said to them, you know, the problem is you won't get what you want, because you just want it for yourself. It's selfish ambition, it's for your own desires. And this person said to me, nothing wrong with ambition, nothing wrong with my desires. And I thought, hold on, what version of the Bible do you have? It says, says, lusts in mine. I'm not talking about lusts, he was saying. <laughs> so, just have to be careful. But the, the point I'm trying to make is this, that the Bible is serious. That we're not going to get things from God if the only we- reason we want it is for our own selfish ends. If you're praying for the conversion of someone who works next to you because they're such a pain and you can't take them any longer and you are just absolutely fed up of them and you're saying, oh Lord, that person must get saved because I just can't stand them any longer. I don't know that God is going to rush to the answer of that particular prayer. If he does, it won't be because of the way you prayed it. It'll be because of the heart he has for the person who sits next to you in the office that he might deliver them and give them grace from the person who's sitting next to them. <laughs> you can think on that. <laughs> but God wants us to be praying with the big picture in mind, which is not just about me, 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 me. Lord, unless your presence goes with me, it's unless your presence goes with us. Lord, there's a bigger issue here. A powerless church wandering around the world is not going to bring any glory to the Almighty. In fact, God is so gracious because we do Him such disservice. 
There are so many people who are skeptical about God because they've seen a side of the church that doesn't honour Him. And when we get to that point where we're saying, Lord, we need your presence, because otherwise, your name is not going to be held in honour in our midst. We need your presence, Lord, because without that presence, the church of Jesus Christ is not going to shine like the sun. It's not going to be the blaze of glory. It's not going to be a worthy body for your glorious headship. And we need to be aware of this. And so Moses is quite right when he's praying these things in context. He prays in the context of God's glory. Verse 16, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? People need to see you with us, Lord. They don't want to see people boasting around and saying, oh, look at all the blessings of God in my life. Look at all the blessings of God. Look what I have. Look what I have. See how I've been blessed. See how many Mercedes I've got. See how much money I've got. See how much... People don't want to know that. You know, there are people in the world who don't know the Lord who drive Mercedes, you know. But those people, they drive the Mercedes without God. It's having God that makes the difference, not having the Mercedes... We, we need to know God. The church isn't going to be described as the people of God in their Mercedes. It's going to be known as the people of God who've got God in their lives. That's what it's meant to be. And this is why it's so strong here. For how will it be known that your people and I found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said to him, please, please, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see my face and live. That's when Wesley inserts that glorious phrase. Well, if no man can see your face and live, let me see your face and die. <laughs> that, that's a heart attitude, which is so good. He said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I tell you, once Moses had seen God's back, Moses knew more of God than anybody else had ever known up until that point upon the earth. What a thought. Huh? What a thought. I don't want you strutting out of here today saying, well, Moses only saw God's back. I've seen his face. You know. Well, you know, if you're going to talk like that, there needs to be a greater sense of God's presence on your life than there ever was on Moses, you know. If you're going to talk like that, I expect you to turn up next Sunday with a veil over your face so that we can uh, (laughs) cope with the glory that's shining out from you. But let's get real, folks. The church today is meant to have seen the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet in reality, most of us have never ever seen even a remote part of what Moses saw of the greatness of God. I'm, I'm saying that. Now I know that some people would want to shoot me down in flames. 
but I'm not interested at this particular point in time in a theological argument. I know that theologically, in the New Covenant, we see God's face. And Moses in the Old Covenant couldn't see God's face. But what I'm talking about is the reality of knowing the Lord. And I have a very strong suspicion that whatever our theological persuasion is, that Moses would actually give better insight into the knowledge of God than many of us could. Than many of us could. Because he had that desire in his heart to see the presence of the Lord. Moses wanted to see God's glory personally. We need to see God's glory personally and we also need to see God's glory corporately. I'm not covering the prayers of Jesus in this series, but in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed that we might see the Father's glory. I'm going to finish with these words. John 17, Jesus prays in verse 20. And as I read these words, I want you just to capture afresh in your heart the need for intimacy and insight as we move into new dimensions of prayer. Commanding God's will to be done because we're in relationship with the God whose will is declared. Commanding God's will to be done because we know the ways of Him in achieving that will and that purpose. John 17 verse 20 I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you. These have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Lord, we come before you individually and as a church. We pray, Father, that you might take us on in our prayer life into new realms of understanding. Whether it's prophetic prayer, power prayer, revival prayer, purposeful prayer, whatever it is, Lord, we want to be a company of people that you can trust on this earth to pray effectively. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Lord, as we pursue this theme in coming weeks, Lord, give us greater insight. But Lord, as we take this message home with us today, Lord, may our prayer lives be different from this point. May there be a new reality as we seek your face and seek to see your will done 
on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.